Jones, Australia's leading voice. Good evening and thank you for being with us again. Look, I'm sure you'll agree with me that the need has never been greater for non-woke commentary, for common sense and for telling viewers what they otherwise wouldn't be told anywhere else. For example, last Friday, the Florida Surgeon General, one Dr. Joseph Ladapo, announced new guidelines regarding vaccines. Now, Dr. Ladapo is a physician whose primary interests include clinical trial interventions and reducing the population burden of cardiovascular disease. Pretty important, wouldn't you think? He is a professor at the University of Florida College of Medicine. He's a graduate from Harvard Medical School with a PhD in health policy. Now, the Florida Department of Health has conducted an analysis to evaluate vaccine safety. You won't hear about this on the woke media outlets, but the analysis found there was an 84% increase in the relative incidence of cardiac-related death among males 18 to 39 years of age within 28 days following mRNA vaccination. Now, the M, which you see is a small M, that's for messenger. This is a different type of vaccine that uses a molecule called mRNA. It's brand new, this stuff, rather than part of an actual bacteria or virus. mRNA, as I said, is new. Now, the Surgeon General and the Florida Department of Health found that with a high level of global immunity to COVID-19, the benefit of vaccination is likely outweighed by this abnormality, high risk, abnormally high risk of cardiac related death amongst men in this age group. Non-mRNA vaccines were not found to have increased the risk. So the state surgeon general recommended against males 18 to 39 from receiving mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Now, shouldn't we be told this? Following the announcement, Twitter blocked and then re restored a post from the Florida surgeon general that was prompting this analysis. Twitter stated in its post that blocked Professor Ladapo's tweet, I quote them, our current misleading information policies cover synthetic and manipulated media, COVID-19 and civic integrity, unquote. Don't you love the manipulated media? That must be media with whom Twitter don't agree. The non-woke stuff. Civic integrity. Who decides that? Anyway, Twitter restored the post on Sunday morning. But when are we going to allow the public in consultation with their doctor, the individual in consultation with his doctor, to decide what is the best approach to an individual's health problems? Shortly, I'll be speaking to Lord Jonathan Sumption, a brilliant scholar, world acclaimed, who'll talk about the invasion of authoritarian government into our lives in coronavirus. And here is social media via Twitter, telling us that we shouldn't have access to the clinical research of a brilliant Florida academic. And no one is prepared to ask why this should be. Well, a massive race meeting on Saturday in Sydney, the Everest. It was launched last night on Sydney Harbour. It was spectacular, but also extravagant. And one wonders whether battling trainers and owners in the bush in particular think that racing money should be spent in this way. I mentioned last night about the gas crisis and the Treasurer is making noises today about cutting prices. Well, why doesn't he talk to the West Australian Premier? 
if you had a gas reservation policy, you wouldn't have to worry about escalating prices. And Treasurer, where does the election promise sit now to cut our power bills by $275? How many times have I said that to get to net zero emissions, you don't just worry about electricity generation, but also agriculture and transport? When cows burp or break wind, carbon dioxide emits, if carbon dioxide is what no all governments are worried about. Well, now the Ardern government in New Zealand, on the run, increasingly unpopular, is proposing taxing the greenhouse gases that farm animals make from burping, urinating and breaking wind. And Ardern is boasting that the farm levy would be a world first. The woman is kidding. As New Zealand farmers have said, the plan would, quote, rip the guts out of small town New Zealand. But I've got an interesting question. How do you measure the carbon dioxide emissions when the cow burps or urinates or breaks wind? And who would be given the job? Well, it's not only politicians who write themselves suicide notes. What's happening at the Manly Rugby League Club in Sydney? They're not going to do better than Des Hasler. And two of their stars, Jake and Tom Travojevic, requested a Des Hasler clause in their contract. It was rejected. But the Trebojevic boys are contracted to 2026. Boot out Des Hasler, and you've got some very unhappy top-ranking players. And this is all the consequence of the way the club handled the rainbow jersey fiasco early this year. And since Des was outspoken about the way the club handled it, it's reported that the owner, Sean Penn, who spends most of his time living in New York, has been gunning for Des Hasler ever since. It seems Penn will get his man and Anthony Siebold will become coach of Manly. If that makes sense, you must know nothing about Club Harmony. Well, plenty for you tonight on the program. Stay with us. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Earlier today, survivors and relatives of the 202 people killed in the Bali bombings returned to Bali to mark the 20th anniversary of the terror attack. More than 300 people attended a commemoration service at the Australian government's Consulate General in Denpasar. The Indonesian Foundation of Survivors and Indonesian Police's anti-terror squad released baby turtles and doves at a beach in Bali's Nusa Dua. Because the turtle is able to defend itself on its own, it personifies immortality and fertility. In the story of Noah and the Ark, the dove represents a fresh start and a new beginning. Candles have been lit at the site of the bombings tonight. How family members or friends can ever come to grips with this horror is beyond the comprehension of most of us. It was an horrific night 20 years ago. Three bombs tore through Bali, killing 202 people and wounding hundreds more. 88 Australians were killed in the attack, the biggest Australian loss of life as a consequence of terrorism ever. Surely for the family of victims, the memory of what happened will haunt them forever especially when the ideological inspiration for the bombings at Bali, Abu Bakr Bashir, now 82, was freed from prison last year after serving only two thirds of his sentence. The bomb maker, Umar Patek, is set to be freed from prison in East Java after his 20 year sentence has been halved. Anthony Sevilicic, who was 25 at the time when the explosion ripped through the bar of the Sari club, partially burying him in burning rubble, suffered burns to 60% of his body, months in hospital, and had to learn to walk again. Unsurprisingly, Anthony Sevilicic said of the likely release of the bomb maker, and I quote, I think it's rubbing salt into the wounds. 
This guy built the bomb, which killed all these people, and he's only done 10 years of a 20-year sentence, so he's getting a discount, unquote. Well, the former federal police officer, Frank Morgan, has said, and he was one of the first responders, quote, there are 88 Australian families that have been given a life sentence, and this guy walks out, he's got a big grin on his face. There's no contrition, there is no nothing. Anthony Savilicic said today of the bomb maker Patek, as far as I'm concerned, this guy is a mass murderer and should be put away for the rest of his life, unquote. I read about Tom Singer, who was in year 11 at Marist College in Pagewood, Sydney. He went to Bali, it was his first overseas trip. He was a surfer and a lifesaver at Coogee. He was 17. A brave Hannabeth Luke, then 22, tried to save Tom, supporting the bloodied teenager as they stumbled out of the inferno. And that picture you can see went around the world. The photo is extraordinary. Tom died a month later, leaving another family to comprehend a senseless loss. Tom Singer's family joined other families early today at a memorial service at Coogee. But what awful memories of a beautiful son with shrapnel wounds and burns to his lungs and almost two thirds of his body. Tom Singer hovered between life and death. After a month, death won. We are bad in this country at recalling history. We must remember the pain and sense of loss some of our fellow Australians suffered that night and learn from it. I think today of Craig Salvatore, who played for me at South Sydney. He also played rugby league for Australia. He was there with his wife, Kathy, and two children, Olivia, who was then nine, and Eliza, six. Craig didn't go out that night. Kathy did with friends. Craig was woken at 3 a.m. and told there had been a terror attack. Later, he put his two daughters on a flight home to Sydney, who didn't understand. He told the children, quote, we're still looking for mummy. Three hours after putting the children on the plane, Craig found Kathy's body in a morgue, barely recognisable except for some jewellery, her body badly charred, her blonde hair blackened. 20 years ago today, there were three bombs, a backpack device carried by a suicide bomber, a large car bomb, both of these detonated in or near nightclubs, but Paddy's Bar and the Sari Club were hardest hit. All the work of the militant Islamic group, Gemma Islamiah. The seeds of the attack were sown 10 months earlier at a secret meeting of JI operatives when Imam Samudra announced to the main agents of the plot the plan to bomb Bali. Argued Samudra, quote, Bali was chosen because it was frequented by Americans and their associates, unquote. The plot was devised, according to Samudra, quote, to defend the people of Afghanistan from America, unquote. Well, all up close to 50 people were involved in the planning and execution of the attack. Most served sentences ranging from six years or less to 18 years. 36 were given sentences of less than life. They were freed years ago. And they include the men who recruited the suicide bombers, drove bomb-laden vehicles, or built suicide bomb vests. They included plotters, financiers, and others who sheltered the world's most wanted terrorists. Imam Samudra, and two associates were executed in 2008 for planning the attacks. Another planner was killed in a raid by Indonesian counter-terrorism police in March 2010. Another, Dr. Azari Hussein, nicknamed the Demolition Man, was killed 
in a police raid on his hideout in 2005. The infamous Habali, Hambali, the bloke who ordered the new strategy of hitting soft targets such as nightclubs and bars rather than high profile sites like foreign embassies, Hambali is now 57 and has spent the last 16 years in Guantanamo Bay in Cuba. Hambali was described by the former President George W. Bush as one of the world's most lethal terrorists. And Abu Bakr Bashir has been freed from prison after serving only two years of a 15-year sentence. But the sentence was to do with the establishment of a terror cell in Aceh. He was never convicted over the Bali bombings. But he's on record as saying, just after the Bali bombings, and I quote, you must know that there will be war in the world and God willing, Australia will be destroyed instantly due to the crazy idea of its prime minister. That was John Howard. And he said, quote, the incumbent prime minister is an ally of George W. Bush, the worst and most evil president in the world. Bashir also said that suicide bombings were, quote, a noble thing when used in the defense of Islam. He's now 83 and he's free, which leaves, of course, the bomb maker, Patek, who's done 10 years of a 20 year sentence and is likely to be released. All these memories come rushing back today to victims, relatives and survivors. There has been very little change to the land once occupied by the Sari Club. Plans for a memorial garden or a peace park have never eventuated, despite the Australian and state governments pledging support to purchase the 1,500 square metre site from its owner. There was uproar at previous plans to build a restaurant. The owner now has designs on a hotel. But as the man whose home shared a wall with the Sari Club before it was destroyed has said, something should be done with the land. He said, quote, I wish they'd build on it anything. Andrew Kasabi lost his left leg and part of his right foot and sustained other serious permanent injuries as a result of the bombings. He said the site should be redeveloped and he's happy to have a monument 30 metres away on Cooter's main tourist strip, but he counts himself lucky that he's not among the list of names at the memorial. These words alone mirror the fact that the effects of this horrific attack 20 years ago today linger on. Jonathan Sumption, Lord Sumption, is a British author, medieval historian and former senior judge who sat on the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom between 2012 and 2018. He's a man of extraordinary distinction. In fact, he was appointed to the Supreme Court directly from practicing at the bar. Doesn't happen. That is being a barrister. He'd never been a full-time judge. His personal history is extraordinary. He's been involved in some of the biggest cases in British legal history, including defending the Russian billionaire Roman Abramovich in a private lawsuit brought by another Russian billionaire, Boris Berezovsky, a Russian government official who made his fortune in Russia. Now, the case against Abramovich was over the ownership of a ma the major oil producer, Sibneft. Berezovsky sought over three billion pounds in damages. Lord Sumption's defence of Abramovich led the court to conclude that Berezovsky had never been a co-owner of Sibneft. Berezovsky, formerly a supporter, had become a harsh critic of Putin. He was found dead in his home at Titnus Park near Ascot in Berkshire in 2013. Back to Lord Sumption, he's the author of a substantial narrative history of the Hundred Years' War, so far in four volumes. 
He's a fellow of the Royal Historical Society and during lockdown was a strident critic of the coronavirus response and associated British government policies. He's in Australia as a guest of the Menzies Research Centre and I had the chance to catch up with him yesterday. I began the interview yesterday by offering the background to that interview. Here it is, introduction and interview in its entirety. Earlier this week on this program, I argued there must be something bordering on a royal commission to investigate the appalling and damaging government response to coronavirus. I made the point that the message was repeated that only public health experts were allowed to guide public policy. But we've just been visited in this country by an expert like Professor Jai Bhattacharya, who along with many were ignored when they argued a totally different approach to things like lockdown. I made the point that the Prime Minister-designate in Italy, Giorgia Maloney, will institute a parliamentary inquiry in Italy into what Maloney calls, quote, the disastrous management of the pandemic, unquote. And she wants a commission in front of which, quote, everyone will be called to assume their responsibilities. Well, we have another distinguished visitor to our shores, the retired former UK Supreme Court Judge, Lord Jonathan Sumption. Lord Sumption was a Justice of the Supreme Court of the United Kingdom between 2012 and 2018. He delivered the BBC Wreath Lectures for 2019. He's in Australia as a guest of the Robert Menzies Institute. But he described last year the COVID lockdowns as, quote, the most significant interference in personal freedom in the history of Britain, unquote. He said, quote, the British state exercised coercive powers over its citizens on a scale never previously attempted, unquote. Now remember, this is a former judge of the Supreme Court in Britain. He said, quote, the government has deliberately stoked fear over coronavirus while behaving like an authoritarian regime, relying on police state tactics, unquote. And he said, quote, the ease in which people could be terrorized into surrendering basic freedoms, which are fundamental to your existence, came as a shock to me in March 2022. He said, I do not doubt the seriousness of the epidemic, but I believe the history will look back on the measures taken to contain it as a monument of collective hysteria. Well, Lord Sumption joins me. Jonathan Sumption, thank you for your time. Why is it that those politicians and so-called health experts telling government what they wanted to hear will seemingly escape without sanction while the public have suffered? Well, that depends on what the various inquiries that are in progress in many different countries, including the UK, come up with. But I think that people are now beginning to look back on the lockdown period as a period in which some very strange things happened to themselves and to the society in which they lived. You made the point at some length, which is worth repeating, and forgive me, but for the benefit of our viewers, Lord Sumption said this, and I quote, the real question is, is this serious enough to warrant putting most of our population to house imprisonment, wrecking our economy for an indefinite period, destroying businesses that honest and hardworking people have taken years to build up, saddling future generations with debt, depression, stress, heart attacks, suicides, and unbelievable distress inflicted on millions of people who are not especially vulnerable and will suffer only mild symptoms or none at all. So he said, the real question is, is all this imprisonment and wrecking of the economy justified? Jonathan Sumption, that's precisely what happened here. What redress do people have? Legally, none. Politically, 
there should be a big backlash. I don't know whether there will be. But I think that whatever you may think about the efficacy of lockdowns, and there are conflicting opinions about that, one thing is, I think, clear about most Western governments, certainly in Europe, and that is that nobody actually tried to even assess the consequences of a lockdown. They simply said, we think that this will be medically beneficial. That's a large question in itself. They never measured the benefits that they saw in the lockdown medically against the medical damage uh, and the societal damage, the sheer economic, uh, educational and social destructiveness of a policy which prevented human beings from doing what is actually essential to their humanity, namely engaging with each other. Wonderful. Magnificent. You see here, uh, Jonathan, government is indifferent. Uh, to businesses going broke. You can't even get a debate. You can't get people to submit to any kind of interview. Family turmoil, suicide, children kept out of school. People in Melbourne, where you've been in particular, made to live like battery hens. You said that the COVID lockdowns were, quote, the most significant interference in personal freedom in the history of Britain. That ought to be enough to give some politicians with a conscience the capacity to revise and relook and analyse what went on and why it went on. Uh, do you think we're going to get that? I can't answer that question for Australia, and I don't know what sort of inquiry will emerge in the United Kingdom. So far as I'm aware, the UK is the only European country in which the lockdown was controversial enough to warrant having an inquiry at all. We do not yet know how thorough it will be, uh, what uh, items it will choose to home in on, or what sort of conclusions it will come up with. I very much hope uh, that it will look at the matter from the ground up with all the information available, including international comparisons, because mm. that's one of the most significant things of all. There'll be no inquiry here. Sorry, you're going to go on? Well, there's absolutely no correlation between the severity of the measures yes. taken by governments uh, and the mortality and hospitalisation rates. There's none at all. None. So Sweden did slightly better than the UK in spite of having a pretty well wholly uh, voluntary system. Yeah, no lockdown. That's what we need to look at. Yeah, absolutely, no lockdowns. I mean, there was never a piece of paper even submitted here when governments made all these edicts, authoritarian edicts, and called frighten the hell out of people. And I kept on saying, well, can we have a piece of paper which justifies what you're doing? And they didn't want to know about it. Uh, Jonathan Sumption, there'll be no inquiry here because both major political parties were complicit. But you said, and I quote you, scientists can advise what measures are likely to reduce infections and deaths, but only politicians can decide whether those measures make sense in economic and social terms. But Jonathan, we had chief medical officers here becoming de facto governments. And there was never, as I said, a single sheet of paper provided which justified the dictatorial regimes that were being imposed. How does the person viewing you here tonight come to grips with that and remove the impotence that they feel? Well, the first thing you've got to do is to persuade politicians to behave like politicians. The first task of politics uh, is to understand what the consequences of their decisions are likely to be, not just in medical terms, but in, t in terms of its entire consequences. And the second task of politicians is to weigh up incommensurable factors. You've got to weigh up uh, the alleged medical advantages of your policy against the social and economic and educational disadvantages. 
The problem really was nobody ever carried out that weighing up. In the UK, we had also scientific and medical officers who candidly said in evidence to our parliamentary committees, well, it's, uh, we realise that there are going to be serious collateral consequences, but it's not our job to, to factor those in. And it, they were right, it wasn't their job. But the problem really was it was no one else's job, or at least mm. no one else who was prepared to do it. Mm. But Jonathan's assumption, no politician in office will admit that their decisions created what you've just called catastrophic side effects. You said, and I quote, you know one in government was grown up enough to confront the real issue. Does a low risk justify huge economic cost? Can you answer your own question? Well, my own view is not. But at least, I mean, other people will have a different answer to that question. But at least the question needs to be asked. Uh, and no politician was prepared to answer it. Hmm. I mean, you said in relation to these lockdowns and restrictions, you said like so many of the government's measures, it's been maintained simply in order to avoid admitting that it was a mistake. And yes. you said that politicians, quote, are destroying our economy, our cultural life and our children's education in a fit of absent mindedness. But the trouble for people watching you here, Jonathan Sumption, is they're thinking, God, I agree with all that, but they've got away with it. They've got away with it so far. Uh, but over time, the true costs of this, even in terms of human life, will become apparent. Uh, we are now having deaths which are nothing to do with COVID, but which have undoubtedly been accelerated by the lockdown. Deaths from dementia, deaths from uh, untreated or undiagnosed cancer or heart disease, and from other medical conditions. So even if you limit yourself to the medical problems, uh, the problems are accumulating and the evidence, I think, is becoming stronger. You wrote a very interesting piece, if I might commend you, last week, but it's most disturbing as well, that the death of democracy is now a live threat. How live? Well, we are not there yet, but there are tendencies which are really very troubling. One of them, of course, is directly related to the pandemic. It's the propensity of the population to accept highly authoritarian measures if they're sufficiently frightened, which the government's power of uh, over the media in particular will always enable them to do. They, it will always be possible for governments to frighten their citizens if they try hard enough. If we forget, though, China and Russia and Iran for a moment, is democracy being challenged by those within it? Yes. Who have lost faith in its own form of government? Every time uh, that, for example, demonstrators say, we're not going to go down the political route, not down the persuasion, persuasion route uh, in support of our grievances about, for example, climate change. We would rather uh, uh, bully and uh, uh, people and make their life difficult and intolerable until they agree to submit. Every time somebody acts in that way, they are basically sidelining the political process which lies at the heart of democracy. You write about democracy that it can only survive if it understands the values and desires of a majority of citizens. So if you go back to coronavirus, government views weren't endorsed by its citizens, but the citizens weren't given a voice. Well, I think that the evidence is that the citizens overwhelmingly supported the lockdowns. Uh, but uh, the problem is that they supported it uh, under the influence of fear. 
And there are occasions when politicians have to take a larger view of the issues than their voters. They have to say, OK, the public may not be thinking seriously about the economic and educational fallout of all this, but we have to think about the wider issues and we have to think about future generations. Absolutely. Absolutely. You talk about, it's quite remarkable to talk to you, it's wonderful to hear these views, you talk about the respect for the rule of law central to the survival of democracy, but there is no respect for the rule of law with climate change marches, placard waving, Black Lives Matter. Are people today more unprepared to accept democratic decisions they don't like and feel a license to do as they please? I think there is certainly a tendency to feel uh, that the only test uh, of, um, for example, the desirability of violent demonstrations uh, is whether they yield the answer that the demonstrators want. And that goes with a reluctance to accept uh, that the public may not be with them and that that, that, that may stymie their views. Mm. I think you have to accept uh, that you've got to persuade people. Now, I quite see that there is a problem in that it's very difficult to persuade people uh, to tighten their belts. And pretty well all proposed solutions to climate change do involve tightening belts. Um, uh, and I can understand the frustration and difficulty of the climate change activists. But, you know, if you have to choose uh, between uh, effective action against climate change and democracy, Personally, I would choose democracy. And one reason I would do that is that although it means that we may have a slower uh, and more difficult progress towards a solution, uh, sooner or later there will be a solution. Uh, I think that in democracies it's likely to happen only when the disaster is too imminent a to be ignored. Absolutely. But that will happen. Absolutely. Uh, in that splendid piece that you wrote, you cite John Adams one of the founders of American democracy, warning, and I quote, democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes and exhausts itself. There never was a democracy yet that didn't commit suicide. Do democracies fail from within? Yes. And how do we prevent that? Democracies depend not just on having voting booths and periodical elections. They depend upon a culture uh, of restraint, uh, of tolerance of dissent, uh, and a culture which says that it's more important uh, to have a way of deciding issues that will be accepted on both sides than to decide the issues in a particular way. The big problem comes when people say, I care more about getting the, quote, right, unquote, answer to this question than, than I do about the way we get there. Mm. Yet the whole of politics, the whole of the Constitution, is designed to enable us although we disagree radically on important issues, to live together in society without the systematic application of coercion. Mm. And if you abandon politics, you end up with coercion. One of the disturbing points that you made was you argued that democracies have always depended on economic optimism. When, say, the government of Australia runs up a trillion dollars of debt, splashing money around, allegedly fighting coronavirus, and this generation and the next and the next are left to pay it off, how can they be economically optimistic if that is a central component for the survival of democracy? Well, that's going to depend on a very large number of other factors that determine how prosperous uh, we and our successors are. 
um, government expenditure may be a negative factor, but it's not the only factor. It may be outweighed by the positives. But in general, I would say that a sense of optimism about the prospects of the future uh, has underpinned support for democracy uh, for most of history. Remember, democracy has quite a short history, about mm. two centuries. Mm. Uh, and if you, uh, if you disappoint expectations, that's a really dangerous moment in the history of any society. Yes, I suppose one of the most disturbing things I thought in what you said, because I'm, I can see it playing out in the real world when you're talking about the survival of democracy, you wrote, once we start telling ourselves that it's more important to get our way, democratic decision-making is done for. Um, do you find that society, contemporary society, lacks the kind of discipline that is necessary for democracy to survive, where people start to demand that they must get their own way? I think that there's a strong element of that. And I think that it's a particularly strong idea among the young, who in many Western societies have been marginalised uh, e economically and politically. Um, I think we need to address generational injustice, which is an important issue, mm. certainly in the UK and possibly in Australia, because otherwise we're going to get more of this. Just finally, you ask at the end of the rhetorical question in a way, will democracy resist these pressures in the next century? We're a very experienced scholar. What is your conclusion? Can democracy resist these pressures? I think probably not. And I think climate change may be the really critical problem, because climate change is an issue that can only be resolved internationally, but democracies are essentially national. Accountability of politicians is essentially national. There's no such thing as an international legislature. And that's where I see the biggest test for democracy coming in the next generation. So uh, the answer is I'm not optimistic. Mm. Nor am I, I have to tell you. Look, thank you for joining us, Lord Sumption. Thank you for your extraordinary intellectual contribution to very important debates. I, for one, am always delighted to read what you have to say. I hope we can catch up again somewhere down the track. But thank you for making time available to us tonight. I'm, it's a pleasure. There he is, Lord Sumption. Those insights are extraordinarily revealing, aren't they? And I'm sure you would have enjoyed it. Well, polls everywhere in Britain and all the news is grim for the Conservative Party, which, according to the polls, faces a landslide defeat at the next election unless the new Prime Minister, Liz Truss, can turn things around. She's more unpopular than Boris Johnson at any time during his premiership. According to a YouGov poll, 14% of the public have a favourable impression of Liz Truss. 73% view her unfavourably. Her authority is being weakened after a tumultuous Conservative Party conference beset by cabinet infighting. Nadine Dorries, very articulate, who was a prominent supporter of Liz Truss during the Tory leadership contest, said the Prime Minister had made some, quote, big mistakes in her first weeks in office, unquote, and didn't have a mandate for her radical agenda. One of the plainly stupid initiatives Liz Truss proposed was to curb increases to welfare benefits at a time when people are struggling to cope with the cost of living. Well, let's go to David Maddox, who has better insight into the crisis of the Conservative Party than anybody. He is, as you know, the political editor of Express Online. You can read him at express.co.uk. And David joins me. David, has anything improved for Liz Truss or the Conservative Party since the conference? 
the the short answer to that, Alan, is no. Uh, in fact, they're, they're going further behind in the polls. Uh, we we have a weekly tracker poll, and um, they, they they lost another two points the last time that came up at the end of last week, and uh, you know that sets them onto the worst result in their history. You know they're twenty two points behind Labour. Uh, the, the party seems to be. The Conservative Party, that is, seems to be absolutely dead set on fighting each other and kind of killing off their electoral prospects. Uh, I noticed, actually, just before I came on air with you, uh, Rishi Sunak has now reappeared. He was seen hugging uh, his um, the shadow Labour Chancellor, uh, Rachel Reeve, at an event last night and having a friendly chat with her. Uh, his supporters are milling around Parliament today. Uh, we've got Prime Minister's questions coming up. Nobody seems to be supporting Liz Truss at all, not uh, least of all people in her cabinet. Mm. Uh, it's, it's, it's all slightly crazy. Actually. How did the speech go to the conference? She attacked, quote, the enemies of enterprise. She said Britain was too reluctant to do things differently and staked her premiership on developing the economy. Are they still saying mm. in both Number 10 and the Cabinet that Liz Truss's future is problematical and that Ben Wallace... The defence secretary is being lined up. Yes, and, and this is this is true. They're, they're, they are. I think she's now got till Christmas. I mean, initially there was a point last week where people were giving her ten days to sort it out, but uh, the speech was good enough. It was as about as good as she's ever delivered, which is not great. She's not a very good speech maker, but it was a good speech. She's bought herself, I reckon, enough time to at least get through till Christmas. Uh, see a, another budget through and then uh, see what happens uh, in, in January. But the, if things continue to go badly, mm. the idea is that they tell her to go and then instead of having a leadership race, they find a unity candidate with the obvious person there is the Defence Secretary Ben Wallace, yeah. nice solid chap. You know. I, I thought yeah. what she was saying on energy policy at the conference had merit. Now, of course... The Greens yeah. are in a tiz because Jacob Rees-Mogg has been put in charge of the whole energy portfolio. I mean, what is happening there? I thought the energy initiatives were quite sound. No, I, actually, I think that's her strongest card. I mean, there's nobody that disapproves of, well, firstly, the energy price cap she's brought in, which is going to cost us a fortune, but it's going to stop people from freezing to death this winter and stop uh, companies from going out of business. So that's actually very welcome. And secondly, the idea that we are uh, not just energy secure in terms of producing all our own energy, but actually have enough to sell to other yeah, countries yeah. afterwards. Uh, I mean, it's only the green lobby and the net zero uh, people who are yeah. uh, uh, screaming and shouting about this. But mm. actually, you know, it, it's it's the right way. And, and there's very little uh, argument within our own mm. party about the, it. The, the, the trouble... Bank. Yeah. You know. I mean, the trouble is there are thousands of businesses across the UK buckling under rampant inflation and mm. flagging consumer demand. Is there going to be a growing corporate casualty list? And then will trust be blamed? I mean, factories across Europe and Britain have cut back production because of soaring energy prices, all of which you and I warned would happen. And everywhere soaring mm. energy prices make production unprofitable. Will this trust capping energy bills make any difference to this? 
I think so. I think so. Uh, I mean, just to kind of get put it in household perspective rather than a business one, but it, it's worse businesses. Uh, we're looking now at about £2,500 a year for households as a result of the energy uh, cap. If she hadn't done that, we were looking at at least at least £6,000 a year uh, per household, which, uh, you know, is an astonishing amount. I mean, most people mm. couldn't actually mm. afford it. Yeah, well and, done. Uh, well, well done, Well done, Yeah, well done to the renewables, eh? Oh, come on. I mean, that, yeah. tide, that tide's gone out. Just coming back to that business closure point that I made, uh, do you feel... Mm. And do you know that there's a wave of business closures washing over the UK? You've got surging costs. You've got weakening customer mm. demand. Cafes, bakeries, breweries, bookstores, pubs, fish and chip shops closing their doors. I note that over a quarter of a million UK companies mm. stopped trading in the first half of this year, 40% more than in the first six months of pre-pandemic 2019. How do you turn that around? It's difficult. I think she's turned it around in the energy side, but that, of course, is not the only problem with cost of living. There's a whole supply chain issue now mm. around the world, mm. uh, which is bunging up prices everywhere. You can't even get, you know, kind of uh, improvements done to your house uh, without them being actually multiple what they were last year. And it's, uh, you know, and food as well. You know, there's obviously no food price cap. And the, uh, I would say that yes. the, the average kind of food yes. basket, if you like, is up 50% yes. from what it was. Mm. And that, that's just from my, me going shopping, you know. But yep. it's, uh, so, it, you know, there are all sorts of cost problems feeding through. Yep. I think actually her intervention has taken away the worst of it. I think we're probably okay. Uh, I mean, it's, not, it's still going to be bad, don't get me wrong, but it, it's not going to be mm. a complete catastrophe yeah, that, I mean, that it was. And, of course, if that happened, it would have been over. The, the, figures, the figures I've seen are frightening. I mean, France, which has reported numbers similar to those in the UK, reported 183,530 businesses, 183,530 yep. businesses closed in the first six months of this year. It seems that the problems that are yep. being chucked in, in Truss's basket are uh, problems that people like Macron and others are experiencing as well. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the problem for Truss isn't, isn't actually the problems, which because they, these are worldwide problems. I mean, I, I've been doing a lot with the US as well. You know, I just got, as you know, I was in Washington recently, uh, and they've got exactly the same problems there as well. They've got rampant inflation and all the rest of it. The, the, the problem for trust was with the political optics of how she went around dealing yeah. with it and causing a, a crash in the pound and uh, yes. just to exacerbate things and all the mm. rest of it. Mm. And, and looking as though, I, I think it was slightly unfair, but looking as though she was favouring the rich mm. instead of, you know, I mean, plus, plus, David, you and I, you and I said over and over again here. I mean, Truss and Sunak at one another's throats for week after week after week, mm. criticising their own party and their previous leader. I mean, no wonder I see a poll yeah. where consumer confidence in the UK fell in September to its weakest level since data mm. was tracked in 1974. None of that uh, leadership ballot contest stuff would inspire consumer confidence, would it? No, no. In fact, they they did a very good job of uh, for two people who had been 
intimately involved in it, of trashing the last 12 years of Conservative government. I mean, if you listen to them, in fact, Labour are still applying a video of all their comments about yes. Yes. the various things from the last yes. 12 years. And it's, now, you've got, now you've got a poll. Yeah. I, I read one of your polls that for the first time mm. since 2008, which was the banking crash, Labour mm. is more trusted yeah. to manage the economy than the Conservatives. And then the same poll yeah. revealed 56% of respondents demanded the Conservative Party go to the country and call an immediate an election. And you quote one MP yeah. saying, if Labor is seen as more economically competent than us, then it's curtains. That's our trump card. It is. And, and this is the thing. Um, the Conservative parties, one thing, that, you know, they're, they're never the most liked party. They, they, they never inspire love. But the one thing you could, should be able to rely on is that they'll look after your money properly. They won't do something stupid with the economy and they'll try and keep taxes down, you know, reasonably. Uh, but, you know, when they lose economic competence, I and mean, there's, there's some historic precedents of this, 1992, John Major's uh, government, uh, he was Conservative Prime Minister, one of the worst, actually, uh, managed to crash for a pound uh, he held on for five years just by the skin of his teeth, but he never recovered after mm. that. And he lost, even though the economy was in good shape five years later, uh, nobody trusted them anymore no, on the no. economy. And Tony Blair no. became the Labour yeah. Prime Minister. But, but why on earth, why would 26% of the big number of Conservative voters want an immediate general election instead of fighting your way out of trouble. I mean, Labor leading the Tories by, I don't know, anywhere between 22 and 33%. And on the polling figures you have, Starmer would have a majority, yeah. if an election were called now, of 322 seats, and the Conservatives would only live 73, yeah. win 73. I mean, how dumb would it be going to the polls now? No, it'd be, it'd be a lunacy. I mean, there's no way that Liz Truss is going to the polls. There's no way the Conservatives are going to the polls. Uh, you know, uh, because that, uh, they would be putting themselves out of jobs and probably putting themselves out of jobs for a generation if they hit yes. that sort of yes. low in the uh, figures. Well, well so Parliament, it's, Parliament know, returned this week. Did the Conservatives make any progress? Not a lot, no. In fact, today's a big day. We've got uh, Prime Minister's questions today. Uh, apparently Liz Trust has now ordered a um, review of her mini budget, which shows that she's losing confidence in it. And yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll see. I mean, the, you, you know very well, PMQ's Prime Minister's Questions is a, a big kind of set piece event. Yeah, yeah. How she handles it, she's going to be attacked on both sides. How she handles it, frankly, is going to be... Uh, uh, tell us an awful lot about how she goes forward. Mm, I agree. Just one thing before we go. I see this Suella Braverman. I think she's got ability. She's got this big portfolio of Home Secretary. She's only 42, former barrister. Mm. She was a candidate for the leadership, subsequently supported Liz Truss, born to parents of Indian origin, but she was born at Harrow, Greater mm. London. But she's announced this policy to ban illegal migrants crossing the English Channel from claiming benefits. I would have thought that would yeah. boost the Conservative Party's appeal. Yeah, I think so. I mean, she's looking at tackling this. You know, we've got thousands and thousands of people crossing the English Channel. Uh, I think it's over 33,000 yeah. uh, this year. Uh, it's, a, it's a real problem. And she's trying to put an end That's to it. it. Uh, uh, so, yeah, I, I personally think Suella 
is uh, the, one of the star, rising stars of this government Definitely. and one Definitely. to watch out for. Definitely. All right, David, we'll see what the next week, what unfolds in the next week. Always good to talk to you. Keep doing wonderful work. And thanks for your time and your insights. Thanks, Alan. There he is. He's good, isn't he? David Maddox. Before we go, I want to make clear just how ruthless and hateful, I'm using those words advisedly, the woke left activists of this country are. To them, nothing is sacred. Australia Day, scrap it. The Australian national anthem, change it. The Australian flag, replace it. The monarchy, destroy it. Our constitution, racialize it with an indigenous voice. Their aim is to desecrate, debase and destroy our culture and our institutions. And now it appears the activists are demanding that the Australian War Memorial bow to identity politics. As reported, the Memorial's Governing Council has decided they will have a, quote, much broader, a much deeper depiction and presentation of the violence committed against Indigenous people, unquote. This will include a commemoration for those Aboriginals killed by British settlers in the Frontier Wars. The Frontier Wars? Let me say at the outset, the idea that there were Frontier Wars is a part of what one of Australia's eminent historians, Keith Windshuttle, has rightly labelled the invention of Aboriginal history. Back then, there were no frontiers, no borders, no governing body, and no sovereign Aboriginal nations on the Australian continent. Back then, there was no war between Indigenous Australians and the settlers. Skirmishes, definitely. Outbreaks of violence started by both sides for different reasons, of course but there was no war. There was no national violence between Aboriginal nations and Australia, which wasn't even a nation at the time. By the way, when skirmishes did break out, both Aborigines and settlers were killed. Here's an interesting one. The father of the man who introduced AFL, Horatio Willis, was bludgeoned to death by 50 members of an Indigenous tribe in central Queensland 160 years ago, along with 18 other men, women, children and babies. I bet Horatio's story won't be told at the War Memorial's Frontier War commemoration. Then there's the clear declaration from Australia's founding father, the first governor of New South Wales, Arthur Phillip, that, quote, any man who takes the life of a native will be put on his trial the same as if he had killed one of the garrison, unquote. Philip's declaration came after King George III ordered him to, quote, endeavour by every possible means to open an intercourse with the natives and to conciliate their affections, enjoining all subjects to live in amity and kindness with them, unquote. This was followed on by Governor Quarrie, who established a native institution for Aboriginal children. He settled Aboriginal adults on a farm at George's Head. He gave them seed and tools. He built huts and boats for others at Elizabeth Bay, and he hosted an annual feast for all the Aborigines of the Sydney region. Doesn't sound like war, does it? That's because it wasn't. Dear me. That's all from me tonight, Frontier Wars. Good God. That's all from me tonight. Thank you for your company. Our friends coming up next. I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. You are watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.